Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to a, another episode of the Sustaining Open Source Design podcast. I'm Georgia Bullen, and I'm here with one of our panelists, Errol Fuck. And we have with us today... Isabella Presetio Floyd, who is a UX UI designer in theory, a professional question asker in practice. She helps build open source scientific software with an emphasis on improving accessibility of communities and their tools. We're really excited to hear more about that today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's always interesting who I get to talk to. That's been one of the most exciting things for me, I think, in these spaces. So if you want to start by telling us about what you do and What's the most interesting <laughs> person that you've gotten to talk to as part of your work? Right. Start with the hard part, talking about myself. Yeah, no, it's good. We'll get it over with. Everything you said is true. I currently work at a place called Quantsite Labs, which works on open source scientific software, mostly in the Python ecosystem. And that means that I get to work on a lot of different projects. That's not like I just only work on this one open source thing or I only work on this one area which I really enjoy. Sometimes it can be overwhelming, but for the most part, that's what I do there. And I don't have a lot of time to do open source outside of that at this point in my life because I spend so much time there. So I think that's the summary of what I have now. Oh, that's such a mood, like not having time to do open source contributions because a lot of your day-to-day is open source related work. So solidarity. You said that you work on a lot of different projects and something that you put in the prep notes for us was about creative problem solving. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the different kinds of projects that you work on and maybe some of the ones that you've had to do the most creative problem solving for within the space. Well, I've worked on a wide variety. The ones I spend the most time on are Project Jupiter, particularly Jupiter Lab and the notebooks that go with that. I've spent a good amount of time on Spider in the past, though I'm a little less busy there right now, which is an IDE for scientific Python made in Python. Oh, right now I'm spending time on Napari, which is an image viewer. So that threw me into a totally new place because a lot of the people I'd been working with before weren't doing imaging specifically and weren't in bio fields. And sometimes I'm like, oh boy, I don't know what you're talking about, even though I thought that my knowledge of the past few years would transfer. So that one's been an adventure. But then I've dabbled in other projects too, like graphic side things for NumPy, for some of the Conda related projects. So that's what I mean is I kind of get pulled around, which is really good. A lot of the time I can transfer knowledge from project to project. And that's one of my favorites because people be like, oh, we're trying to do this here. And I'm like, oh, did you see how this person did it? Or why don't you look at this resource? And they're like, how do you know this? And I'm like, I'm a fly on the wall in a lot of places. And I really like it that way. You've actually said two really interesting things as you were talking about the projects that you were working with. First thing was that your kind of face and voice lit up when you started talking about the imaging work that you were working on. Maybe that might be something to do with like the challenging kind of creative problem solving that you're working on. And you also talked about knowledge transfer, but we'll come back to that one. So if you want to talk more about the imaging in in biofields, I'd love to hear more about what that actually means to yourself as a designer. My face lit up because I do enjoy problems, right? Or I arguably wouldn't be in this space at all. I would say that 
science is almost all, if not entirely problems, in my opinion, as not as a trained scientist. But I think that's the thing, right? Like you see something, you have a response, you're trying to solve it, that kind of thing. But that always excites me. I think, though, it's funny that my face lit up because I'm thinking of it like, you know, that's one that I'm actually I've been intimidated by for sure, because I was like, oh, you know, every time I jump into a new project, there's the learning like I expect that I'm pretty used to it. But I've been surprised, you know, like how long I've been interacting with it and that that's lasted longer than I thought. And I have conversations with people sometimes they're like, oh, well, this will just work like this. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. Why don't you tell me how you think it should work? They have such different use cases, which like working Jupiter and Spider is really awesome. Like there's so many different types of scientists there. And so I really thought I would have run into more imaging people, but very different problems that I've run into working on Napari. And particularly I image viewing, image manipulating library, they'll probably be like, oh, you explained this poorly. But for really any kind of image, so there are definitely people doing astronomy with it. But I'm just around a lot of people doing bioimaging work, which I really hadn't seen before. You know, they'll do things and be like, oh, yes, well, we need to like make sure that it can track this cell organelle over time. And I'll be like, oh, that's awesome. Where with Jupiter, even though I get a lot of different people, a lot of the times they're solving problems in similar ways, because if they're working in it, they're working with large amounts of data. They're working with it often in kind of the same types of documents. So even though the data is really different, they have a lot of overlap in processes. So I think that's why. We've done some work in the Python ecosystem with the PIP project. And I think one of the things that I sort of was aware of, but I think once you're in it, you just have this really different experience where the world of anything kind of connected to Python, there's patterns and similarities, but there's also just so much diversity, right? Of like how things get made, what they're being made for. A lot of it is like, tools for tooling other things, right? Like you were just talking about with Jupyter. There's some parallels in the sense that people are generally doing analysis. And so there's like patterns of that work being applied in a lot of directions. But then you get into something that's more like the Napari project I remember I learned about a few years ago and just sounded super interesting. Exactly what you're saying. Like uh, people doing really amazing work that historically has really only been done on closed source devices. You had to go to a lab to do a thing on like only this hardware using only this closed source software. And so now we're talking about stuff that's part of an open source ecosystem. That means that you have people doing biology and astronomy on the same stuff. You're dealing with so many different ecosystems at the same time. That's really interesting. The transfer of knowledge piece to what, Errol, what you said earlier and just picking up on that thread. These can be really complex ecosystems in so many ways. And so when you are able to have these opportunities of what transfers, It'd be great to hear more about where you felt that or where that was really, how that's made that possible for you to contribute to these projects. It's a good question. What I think of a lot with design and the conversations I have with people, right? Because I am relatively isolated in my space. I'm certainly not the only designer there, but if we're starting to overlap groups here, it's like designers, then designers and open source, we've already cut out a lot. And then I would say like around any scientific ecosystem, I've seen even smaller, though. Maybe I'm missing them. If you're listening to this podcast, reach out to me. Absolutely. So a big part of that, I try and tell people, you know, I'm trying to kind of do the teach other people to fish kind of thing a lot to reference that proverb is I can only do so much. So many times I am solving things for people, but a lot of the time I'm also trying to teach people to think through problems from a different perspective, because what happens a lot, and I think why a lot of the time the knowledge transfer comes down to me, even though 
a lot of other people I work with work on multiple projects, right? A lot of other people I work with also have been working just overall longer than me, right? Like I'm not that old. I don't have the same experience as everyone. But I think the reason it comes up with me a lot is because a lot of the times when I'm working with the people who wrangle the code, whatever their titles might be, they're really focused on the how, which is good, right? We need people to make the thing happen. The how needs to happen. And so a lot of the time I have that conversation where I'm like, okay, let's think a little bit bigger picture. And so I kind of think that's what happens where a lot of the time I'm like, oh, you know, because I have these different options and I'm looking for patterns because I think that's a huge part of design that I am picking up and doing knowledge transfer. A lot of the things though that I think transferred the most are processes of some kind, as formal as that sounds, right? It could be like, people review this this way, or like we were able to solve this problem this way. I feel like those are the things I say the most, but I also will say things like, hey, I've worked with a project that approached this problem this way and this way, and here were the pros and cons for both. What do we think is going to be suited for this, right? I deal with that a lot. Almost every project I walk into has no color system. And that may seem really small, but when I keep opening software and I'm just like, these are all different shades of blue. I'm sure this bothers people that are not me less, right? Like there are people that probably can tolerate this more, but you know, then I'll have a conversation and be like, a lot of this is teaching people how to interact, teaching people the expectations they can transfer the knowledge, helping them transfer knowledge from other software, right? Like we're trying to create these things. And so then it becomes a discussion of like, okay, now we're convinced that we should create kind of a system for this. And it's like, what do we do? And I'm like, well, this project handled it this way. This project handled it this way. Let's look at what kind of maintenance load you have or not, because I think that's important with any design, but especially in open source, I don't really hear people discussing that maintainers to me are also users. They're just users with a very different goal. If you make something they can't maintain though, I think that's still a user failure because that's someone that is going to be using your work. And they're also the ones that are gatekeeping how the non-maintainer users. So I think it's really important to work with them that way. Well, it's good that you've come to that point though, because I have a, it's interesting because my question touches on what you've just said about maintainers and contributors being users or being important to the design. So I heard you in what you were saying, talk about there not being that many designers in this space, this kind of niche space of open source and design that can either have an interest in science or like enthusiasm about science, because you don't need to be an expert to design within science, for sure. And I think my question is, have you found other ways to find that kind of sense of collaboration, that sense of social within the design process when you don't have that many designers working in the kind of open source and science space? And possibly are those people the contributors and maintainers that you bring into a design process? Does that element kind of come into how you kind of pull on the the collaboration element of design within the work that you do? This is a problem, just to say that up front, that I don't have a solution that I'm super satisfied with at this point, but I do have things that I I do. I would say, yes, a lot of it is collaborating with who's there, which is often contributors and maintainers, partially because of that comment. Like, I agree, you don't need to be an expert to be working with these things, but I also need to understand the problems, the language, usually enough to have it make sense. That's something that I've run into sometimes when I'm able to like work with interns and stuff that can be the jump where I'm like, okay, yeah, this looks really nice, but it actually doesn't make sense. So 
what happens with those collaborations? It's very different, right? Because in many cases, the contributors and maintainers are also users, like they have right, different roles at different times. But sometimes they're also not really anymore. Some of them, you know, spend pretty much all their time maintaining now. And that's like what their work has transitioned to, even though they started as someone using it. Ways that I bring them in, though, it can depend how I got to the problem. You know, like, did they ask for help? Did they tag me? I get tagged on GitHub constantly. My inbox is full usually. So if they ask me, then I kind of have a place to start in, right? And we have that conversation. Or did I find it, right? In that case, I'm going to be reaching out to whoever is related on that. Or maybe I'm the one who has the issue in the first place, all right? I'm posting it and saying like, this is a problem. So that can all vary how I gather the people. But one of my favorite ways to do it actually is in the Jupyter community. There's so many projects in there and we have a lot of very specialized meetings, which is important because a lot of specialized work needs to be discussed and done. But we also have a call called the Jupyter Community Call, which has existed for many years on and off. And that is intentionally a cross-project show and tell. It's a big thing that's just like, come together, let's celebrate, let's talk about what the work is. So I wanted that to return for many reasons. And there's many reasons for other people, right? Like we're sharing work, we're doing this, we're that. But one of the more selfish reasons is for me, I feel like that's one of my main ways to collaborate because people are coming and showing what work they're doing. That really gives me a better sense of what users are doing, right? Like it's extremely informal <laughs> user research, but I do kind of see it that way, that running these meetings, because people come in and be like, oh, I wrote this thing because this was broken. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was broken, right? Or like oh, you know, now you've showed me an interaction that you want. So I don't know. I always feel a little weird because people are like, oh, she's being selfish about this. But I also think I kind of have to. There aren't a lot of places and I think it helps me serve them better in the long run. And I think people love talking about what they've worked on, right? So it's super awesome to be able to share that research too. I think it's a win-win. It also speaks to like, actually one of the huge values of conferences that I feel like we're sort of missing. You know, we don't have as much right now in the, uh, when people go to solve a problem or they're making a thing, they're usually solving a problem. It might've been a problem for them or a problem for a few people or whatnot, but especially in open source, like that's a core method of interacting, right? And then when you get to see the things that people have made, it tells you like where there were gaps. Either something was actually broken or like there's a new thing that can be built out of that. Also part of what I heard you saying in the knowledge transfer is sharing with people how to approach design work or how to approach problem solving. So something seems broken, how do we understand what's broken about it or who it's broken for or like how it could change, like the ways in which it could be different. Like what are the potential design solutions, right? Because there might be one, there might be constraints, but like digging into those questions and then ways to validate them. What are the tools that you use with folks about how you validate design direction? I don't think that's a strength in my process at the moment, just to be genuine. There are ways I do actively solicit feedback when I'm working on things, but you do kind of have that like self-selection bias because since I am asking for feedback, I don't really have a serious way to incentivize people who are like, eh, I don't know, I don't really have an opinion to kind of weigh in. That's just not something I have right now. And so sometimes I think it's really funny because it'll be like, I'll get one comment and it's someone who hates it, right? Which is the classic case. That's unsurprising probably to anyone who studied this kind of thing. It depends on the scale of what that solution is affecting, how much outreach I do. But generally, I do have to do the outreach, which 
depends kind of on the day. Some days I really like it because it's really cool, you know, that I have, I really do feel like it's a privilege that I can reach all these different communities and that I have a little bit of connection everywhere at this point. Sometimes it also makes me very tired because I don't really have a system. I don't really have someone I can pass it on to either. Like if I don't do it, it's pretty unlikely to happen. I won't say a hundred percent. So mostly it's soliciting, but that could be like on an issue. A lot of the time though, bringing it to a meeting where there's a discussion, figuring out if I need to schedule a meeting, right? If this is a really high stakes change that's going to influence, like we need to gather people. I need to do that work. This is the hard part of open source. Like it's part of open source culture. It's that intersection where so much of this is like community management and engagement strategies also, right? But it's also the nature of like small teams. This is something, and to your point about, you feel like it's a weak point in your process, but it's a place where you feel like there could be more happening. But it sounds like you're doing a lot. Like that's a ton. Being a small team of folks doing things in this like open source community, that's a lot. It's a lot to do, right? Well, but... I appreciate that, but also it depends. Like some of these pieces of software I'm using are used by a number of people that is bigger than I can really comprehend as a single human. And so sometimes that really stresses me out where I'm just like, I really shouldn't have the power to make these decisions. Like, yes, there are other people who would say no at some point, if that makes sense. Like, it's not like, oh, poof, I've imagined it and now it exists. But sometimes I'm like, oh boy, this is, you know, like everything I've listed has number of users bigger than like anywhere that I went to school at any point in my life. And I just think about that sometimes. I'm like, more people are using this than like my college campus. And that's kind of ridiculous. Like I didn't know that many people there. And part of that's because I'm working on existing things, right? I'm not starting from scratch. I appreciate it. But also sometimes I'm like, I don't know. I think this is probably a pain point to work on more. I feel like my only reassurance is if someone tells us it's busted, then we're like, great, it's busted. Let's fix it. <laughs> like, we'll start again, you know? I think we've really hit on like a really interesting area because you're talking very directly about how design in open source science is sustained. Specifically, the title of the podcast is Sustained. <laughs> Sometimes we sort of dance around the topic of how we sustain things, but you've directly said like, hey, it's hard to keep doing some of this work, which could be categorized as sort of like the community engagement related piece. And maybe the ecosystem of open source doesn't quite see that as valued work and also how valuable it is to design in order to ask questions why within those spaces to then get to better expressions of the problems that people are working in. And you said a phrase, which is, if I don't do it, it won't happen. It's a great phrase because it really drives home that design within open source, you are making those decisions for these pieces of software that are used by so many people. And yeah, here we've come across the real sticky problem of how do we sustain this? So I'd love to hear if you have ideas about how you would Ideally, if you had a magic wand, however you want to express the kind of ideal scenario, I would love to hear how you would want to sustain this work. I want to address the, if I don't do it, won't happen. I want to avoid like the kind of single hero myth. Like some things would, but I also know a lot of the things I do aren't the first priority is usually what I mean with it. For example, the software can totally work without my input. Somebody can make something functional. I've seen it many times, right? I can't actually get everything that's happening. But more along the question of the magic wand, 
I don't know if I have a well thought out answer for you. It's kind of funny because once you asked it, I was like, oh, I probably should have asked myself that at some point. And I don't think I really have. I've just kind of been like, sometimes I think it's like a matter of pace where there's this pressure, you know, particularly working in software and tech, there's kind of this like speed notion that's really prioritized. And I feel it too, because when I'm working on things and I feel like it's going slower than I think that can be bad for morale, if nothing else. And there's often something else. But I believe there's a manifesto document. I don't remember what noun they use that's called like slow science. And I think about that one a lot because it's kind of like, hey, it makes the statement, no, we're not going to try and like post and be like, oh, we did this result. And like the kind of pace with can't believe I'm saying social media. I'm sorry. Like with social media and the ease of this kind of very public reporting is like to announce things before we've really verified and done all this stuff. And I kind of see something in that where I understand the different pressures and why we aren't there. But sometimes I wonder if like it would be more sustainable if we were trying to like operate at a different pace because it would give more people time to weigh in, particularly people with different skill sets, right? Because I think it's very easy and I see it constantly for people writing code because they have accountability to someone else. I don't think it's, I don't want to put the blame on them. Say I'm working on eight projects at once because that happens sometimes and I'm not responding as quickly and they have a deadline. It's very easy for them to just write something and be done with it. And that's just with me at one point, right? I'm not the only classification. Like, you know, a lot of the problems I have are shared by people who are technical writers in these spaces. So I want to say it's not just designers, but sometimes I'm like, okay, if that like pace pressure wasn't on, maybe we would all like kind of be able to take that time. I don't know. I wish I had a more thoughtful answer for you, but that's what I have today. The pacing thing is a big part of it. I've been thinking a lot about like the cycles of feedback loops. We've had a couple of projects that we've been working on that are about these like collaborations and handoffs. And I think that really digs into this pacing concept. And it's really easy for people to identify something that's wrong and report it. And it's hard to understand that the fix for that might mean a structural change, right? Or we don't even know yet, right? Like digging into what's wrong, we kind of have to understand the context of what someone bumped into that was <laughs> that they ran into it and felt like something happened. And then that might be an easy thing or it might be like a whole framing problem. And just helping people build a practice around like, oh, it's not just that you need to go like fix this line of code. It's that actually, to your point, I mean, even you were talking about colors and like having lots of different blues. A lot of that's about creating structure that makes it easy for folks to navigate and do things. It's about making it so that people aren't fighting with the software. They're working on their analysis, right? Like how do we make the tools serve the goals people have as opposed to where do you want to be the points of friction? You want the points of friction to be in helping people review what they're doing and understand it, especially in like science tools, right? Not, we don't want them to be stuck battling with a menu or something, you know, or like a process because the software hasn't had that time for someone to design it to work in a way that will serve many people's needs. So yeah, I think it's a lot about like the context and framing is sometimes harder than folks who aren't familiar with like what it takes to develop software. Sometimes that what I consider the sustainable solution in the sense of like maintenance sustainability, not speaking environmental, just to be clear, different problem. I think, yeah, sometimes it's going to take more time to do the thoughtful thing, right? In fact, I would say almost always, if not always. That's something I run into, right? Because I've said that where it's like, they're like, oh, but I can just choose a blue. I was like, right, I get that it's more to do that. But like, 
Another way I framed it too is like that makes it easier for new contributors. That's been another point. If anybody needs that tidbit, it's a great argument of like, okay, if you're using blue in 5 million places, I'm saying blue to continue the metaphor, but right, that could be anything. It could be the interaction. It could be the way that you're like writing your warnings. It could be the way that you access your warnings. Geez, like the number of times where I'm like, where are the logs for where this failed? We don't want users to get to that point, but it will. Things will break. And I feel like I say that to people a lot too, where I'm just like, nope, it's going to break. We need to plan for that. And I think scientists in my experience have been some of those receptive to that. They're the easiest that like, oh yeah, it breaks. But also sometimes you need the reminder. I've asked the question around what would you do to make design within open source and maybe the particular open source that that people work in. I've asked it a few times of different people and, and often the answer is more of something like more people, more time, more this, more that. And I don't think we've had somebody talk about just the opportunity to slow down and be intentional and be thoughtful. I think it's something we all think about quite a lot. I think about constantly in the design that I do. It's like, I want more thoughtfulness across the board. One of the things you talked about what gets missed when the pace is so fast and there's like this pressure to deliver and things need to move quickly and people don't unpack that kind of phrase of they need to move quickly. But one of the things that gets missed is accessibility considerations. And I would love to hear about how you've worked with different kinds of accessibility needs in some of these complex tools and how might we as designers within open source pace ourselves better to include those. I'm so glad you brought that up. I can't believe it took this long talking with me to bring up accessibility, honestly, because usually I have a bit of a reputation for that, particularly in uh, PR review, for example. Like it'll just be like, oh, she's here. She's going to tell us how this didn't work. Nobody has said that to me, but I get that sentiment from times. Yes, accessibility. Real quick in my description, I want to point out, like we're talking about accessibility, meaning making things usable for disabled people, right? I know sometimes it's used more generally for like the approachability. That's fine. Just being specific for anyone who might not have heard about it. Gosh, I love dealing with accessibility. It's both like frightening and fantastic at the same time, just because I don't think it's really a common practice for people yet. And especially in learning spaces, like I think you kind of run into it either because something went wrong, there was a lawsuit, you saw something scary on <laughs> like an article. It's not everywhere. So it's interesting. But I personally believe that accessibility is just good UX. I'm pretty sure other people have said that, but I don't actually know the origin of that quote. So for me, even though I care about it, it's like its own thing. I would also say like many times it's kind of my like guiding compass, like accessibility is the guiding compass for most of my design things. It helps me make a lot of my choices, especially when I'm working in spaces where I may not understand everything that is happening all the time. But, you know, I can put my mental energies elsewhere, kind of like you were saying, Georgia, about you don't want the people doing science in these tools to have to worry about the tools. You want them to worry about the science. Similarly, sometimes I'm like, okay, you know, there's so many choices you can make sometimes with design. And this helps me make a lot of them because there is a way, you know, and in many cases with accessibility, it's about not having one singular way. It's about having multiple modes for people to interact with something or to have configurations. How can they add things to it, right? Like those are often the most accessible things to do. So working with that with projects though, <laughs> I get frustrated, I think, sometimes just because I was already talking about the Venn diagram of like, right, we have designers, open source, designers in open source scientific software. 
And then we're getting even smaller with the <laughs> accessibility. And so a lot of it is learning because like anything else that we've discussed today, I can't do things on my own, both in the sense that my code writing skills are absolutely baby sized or whatever you want to call that. Right. And it's not what I really want to focus on anyway, but also because there's just so many things to solve. So a lot of the time I'm like, okay, you know, part of our working together is going to be like, hey, let me approach this thing, you know, let me review. And when I review, I'm going to make sure to link to other places. You can kind of read more of what I'm talking about, right? Both and I'm not making this up and you can dive in as much as you need. I also guess I should say, right, I'm working with software where I'm mostly following digital accessibility rules. There's definitely physical cases that I'm, I'm not dealing with, right? Like I'm not dealing with and making anybody's physical assistive tech in open source spaces. In fact, that would be really cool to know if people are doing, but I don't know at the moment. I would imagine they have to because assistive tech is expensive. Okay, there's only a few wonderful. But the other thing I've been trying to figure out how to like harness the power of people that are passionate, because also I find really fortunately, it's easy for people to understand why it's a problem. A lot of the time I have people who are like, yeah, I agree now that I know about this, like, you're right, we shouldn't be doing this. And so it's like, what can we do to fix it? And so being prepared to kind of harness that energy, I've been working with trying to come up with kind of contributing events that give people that structure so that I can leverage whatever their skills are. They can leverage mine in this other space. And we come out with like actual contributions, like real PRs that can fix it. That is something I'm still working on. And that's something I also want to say, like, I'm super grateful I can work on because that's probably not considered traditional design, right? Like I would say a lot of what I do isn't, but I have come to find it that way because how else am I going to solve these things is kind of how I feel. That's a great aspect of like how open source and design can be different. And actually more, there's so many interesting opportunities that come from that. People actually working maybe more in a, within a company closed source or just even if they're using open source, but they're like really staying internally within the organization or company. They don't necessarily even think about those types of modes of engagement or like creative opportunities for getting contributions. I think that's one of the things that is an exciting opportunity for folks who want to do. You can kind of do more participatory design in open source than you can in other places because you can set up these opportunities for participation and contribution in a way that's really different. And it's more part of the culture and models that exist. Yeah, right. Because we're not likely to just go contract someone to fix things, right? And honestly, if we did, I don't even know how that would go. The modes are so different, right? There's that, can you just throw random work at an open source project? I don't know, in my experience, that hasn't usually ended that well, regardless, right? Whether they accept that work or not, usually it has consequences. So it's been an adventure and I like the adventure, but also sometimes I'm like similar to the others. I'm like, what am I, what, how did I, who gave this kiddo? the reins here, right? Like that's how I feel a lot of the time where I'm like, oh boy, it's really cool. One of my favorite things actually about those events though is you kind of get the feedback instantly, which is I think what you're saying with the participatory design. We have great discussions in those meetings usually. And that's really given me a lot of insight. Like one of the problems actually that we deal with a lot is just trying to start with image descriptions, alt text for images on anything. There's images all over the internet, right? But we were trying to fix missing image descriptions in documentation for a bunch of these projects. And pretty much all the guides for image descriptions that we found are very marketing focused, which I don't want to dismiss because those need image descriptions too. But the advice is kind of like what you see. It's a picture of pancakes and it's that. And we open this documentation and it's like, hi, this is a chart that is like showing the spectrographic data of external galaxies. And it's like, 
the advice doesn't really extend that far. Of course, because the W3C is amazing and they have a bunch of accessibility things, they have related resources on that. My favorite I can link after is actually they have like an alt text decision tree that helps you make choices based on the image, like what kind of information is helpful that has served me so well. But right, like one of the really cool things with that was we're trying to fix this documentation and now we've instantly found, you know, as it hops from project to project, it's like this project would be like, oh, well, what about this that you haven't considered? And I'm like, oh, you're right. And then, you know, we have to do that. And it's getting to the point that now, like most of the time we have answers for when projects ask us stuff. And that's just cumulative for moving around and getting things. Cause I'll show up and be like, we should write image description. They're like, what about our images that like don't really exist until the docs are built? Like we just have a screenshot generator. And I'm like, I don't know. But as of like two months ago, I now have an answer. And like, that's really cool that we've built up that knowledge over time. Now it's been a matter of trying to document it well. This has been just like such a great conversation. I think we've touched on so many things from teaching along the way to working with contributors to working across a lot of projects and transferring knowledge and accessibility, which is amazing. We'll close out with a spotlight. So in a moment, we'll each talk about a spotlight project. But just a couple quick things to reference for folks that want to get involved. They can check out the Sustain Open Source website and specifically the working group on designing UX. That's how the panelists here uh, get together and make these things happen. All the Twitter accounts, Sustain OSS, and the podcast is available at uh, sosdesign.sustainoss.org. As well, is there anything that you would want to highlight where to follow stuff, projects on Twitter or you, or if you want to just tell us where people can find you? Sure. The main time that I you can find me on the internet is honestly on GitHub, I-S-A-V-E-L-A-P-F. That's the main one. I am also technically on Twitter because I ended up having to be in order to announce things, but I log in about twice a month. You can find me there at I-S-A-V-E-L-A-P-F too, because Twitter decided I needed a two at the end. So you can follow me there, but if you reach out to me on Twitter, I will not respond quickly. Just know that. So with that, I will move us into our spotlight to close us out. Errol, do you want to go with yours first? Yeah, sure. I've now got two spotlights because we started talking about accessibility. And I wanted to make sure that, I think I've plugged this before, but it's the openaac.org. So as far as I know, and as far as I've been told by my key contacts within the assistive technology space, there are a few different assistive tech open source projects listed on the link on openaac.org that folks can check out. But I found this thing recently that I'd also like to plug, Project Lima. And if you go to Project Lima, and Lima is lima.co slash inclusive dash design dash southeast dash Asia. There's this report on inclusive design in Southeast Asia that I've had like a great time digging into and shared with my colleagues recently. Um, It's a great report on inclusive design in that region. Thank you. Isabel, do you want to share your spotlight? Oh, sure. I share the Ally Project or A11Y. I'm actually not sure how they say it verbally. That is open source, gosh, collection of resources, blog, like a lot of people in accessibility communities and open source gather there, share their thoughts. I felt like it was right to share because years ago, it was one of the earliest things I found when I was looking for resources. I found there's a lot of accessibility knowledge out there. But if you don't have enough knowledge to know kind of what you're looking for to ask more specific questions, I had a hard time finding it at first. And this was kind of my boon. 
Also, shout out to them for still having one of the articles I send to people most. They have an article in there that's like, myth, disability is blind people. And it breaks down like ideas on that. And I still send that to people like at least once a month. So I feel like I owe them my thanks. Awesome. I was going to share something this week, which full disclosure is something that my partner has been working on. This is a big that's coming out of Figma related to accessibility. That's kind of exciting to see. So even though Figma is not an open source tool. I know a lot of folks use it, so I wanted to <laughs> highlight it, but they're um, starting to launch some features around making it easier to do accessibility design, which is pretty cool. And I hope more design tools start doing this because to exactly what you were talking about earlier, you know, when you keep going down into the smaller circles and the diagram, just more of us need exposure to how to think about it and what it means and how to do this well. And Maybe some of our open source design tools will follow suit and do some similar cool things about making it easier to do accessible design. We're doing wrap up, but I also want to point out that's awesome because what happens when I'm trying to share things with people, we're trying to work on designs that are meant to help them. It's pretty terrible. Yeah, there's the whole like, how do you test your design? There's the, how do we start thinking about this while we're doing design work, like all of it. And I just think there's so much potential in us improving the tools that we use to make the other tool that is pretty cool to think about. Thank you so much. It's been great to have you. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll talk to you on the next podcast. Thank you. See you next time.